Book Two, Part One of A Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Book Two, Part One, June Sixteenth to June Twenty Sixth, eighteen sixty two. Monday, June sixteenth, eighteen sixty two. There is no use in trying to break off journalizing, particularly in these trying times. It has become a necessity to me. I believe I should go off in a rapid decline if Butler took it in his head to prohibit that, among other things. I reserve to myself the privilege of writing my opinions, since I trouble no one with the expression of them. I insist that if the valor and chivalry of our men cannot save our country, I would rather have it conquered by a brave race than owe its liberty to the Billingsgate oratory and demonstrations of some of these ladies. If the women have the upper hand then as they have now, I would not like to live in a country governed by such tongues. Do I consider the female who could spit in a gentleman's face merely because he wore United States buttons as a fit associate for me? Lieutenant Biddle assured me he did not pass a street in New Orleans without being most grossly insulted by ladies. It was a friend of his into whose face a lady spit as he walked quietly by without looking at her. Wonder if she did it to attract his attention. He had the sense to apply to her husband and give him two minutes to apologize or die, and of course he chose the former. Such things are enough to disgust any one. Loud women, what a contempt I have for you! How I despise your vulgarity! Some of these ultra-secessionists, evidently very recently from down east, who think themselves obliged to kick up their heels over the bonny blue flag, as brother describes female patriotism, shriek out, What, see those vile northerners pass patiently! No true southerner could see it without rage. I could kill them. I hate them with all my soul, the murderers, liars, thieves, rascals. You are no southerner if you do not hate them as much as I. Ah, saw. A true blue Yankee tell me that I, born and bred here, am no southerner. I always think it is well for you, my friend, to save your credit, else you might be suspected by some people, though your violence is enough for me. I always say, you may do as you please. My brothers are fighting for me and doing their duty, so that excess of patriotism is unnecessary for me, as my position is too well known to make any demonstrations requisite. This war has brought out wicked, malignant feelings that I did not believe could dwell in woman's heart. I see some of the holiest eyes, so holy one would think the very spirit of charity lived in them, and all Christian meekness, go off in a mad tirade of abuse and say, with the holy eyes wondrously changed, I hope God will send down plague, yellow fever, famine on these vile Yankees, and that not one will escape death. 
Oh, what unutterable horror that remark causes me as often as I hear it. I think of the many mothers, wives, and sisters who wait as anxiously, pray as fervently in their faraway homes for their dear ones, as we do here. I fancy them waiting day after day for the footsteps that will never come, growing more sad, lonely, and heartbroken as the days wear on. I think of how awful it would be if one would say, Your brothers are dead, how it would crush all life and happiness out of me, and I say, God forgive these poor women, they know not what they say. O oh, women, into what loathsome violence you have abased your holy mission! God will punish us for our hard-heartedness. Not a square off in the new theatre lie more than a hundred sick soldiers. What woman has stretched out her hand to save them, to give them a cup of cold water? Where is the charity which should ignore nations and creeds, and administer help to the Indian and heathen indifferently? Gone! all gone in union versus secession. That is what the American war has brought us. If I was independent, if I could work my own will without causing others to suffer for my deeds, I would not be poring over this stupid page. I would not be idly reading or sewing. I would put aside woman's trash, take up woman's duty, and I would stand by some forsaken man and bid him Godspeed as he closes his dying eyes. That is woman's mission, and not preaching and politics. I say I would, yet here I sit. Oh, for liberty, the liberty that dares do what conscience dictates, and scorns all smaller rules. If I could help these dying men— yet it is as impossible as though I was a chained bear. I can't put out my hand. I am threatened with Coventry because I sent a custard to a sick man who is in the army, and with the anathema of society, because I said if I could possibly do anything for Mr. Biddle, at a distance, he is sick, I would like to very much. Charlie thinks we have acted shockingly in helping Colonel McMillan, and that we will suffer for it when the Federals leave. I would like to see any man who dared harm my father's daughter. But as he seems to think our conduct reflects on him, there is no alternative. Die, poor men, without a woman's hand to close your eyes. We women are too patriotic to help you. I look eagerly on, cry in my soul, I wish you die. God judges me. Behold the woman who dares not risk private ties for God's glory and her professed religion. Coward, helpless woman that I am! If I was free! June 17th. Yesterday and day before, boats were constantly arriving and troops embarking from here destined for Vicksburg. There will be another fight, and of course it will fall. I wish Will was out of it. I don't want him to die. I got the kindest, sweetest letter from Will when Miriam came from Greenwell. It was given to her by a gorilla on the road who asked if she was not Miss Sarah Morgan. June 18th. How long, oh, how long is it since I have lain down in peace, thinking, this night I will rest in safety? Certainly not since the fall of Fort Jackson. 
If left to myself, I would not anticipate evil, but would quietly await the issue of all these dreadful events. But when I hear men, who certainly should know better than I, express their belief that in twenty-four hours the town will be laid in ashes, I begin to grow uneasy, and think it must be so, since they say it. These last few days, since the news arrived of the intervention of the English and French, I have alternately risen and fallen from the depth of despair to the height of delight and expectation, as the probability of another exodus diminishes and peace appears more probable. If these men would not prophesy the burning of the city, I would be perfectly satisfied." Well, I packed up a few articles to satisfy my conscience, since these men insist that another run is inevitable, though against my own conviction. I am afraid I was partly influenced by my dream last night of being shelled out unexpectedly and flying without saving an article. It was the same dream I had a night or two before we fled so ingloriously from Baton Rouge, when I dreamed of meeting Will Pinckney suddenly, who greeted me in the most extraordinarily affectionate manner, and told me that Vicksburg had fallen. He said he had been chiefly to blame, and the Southerners were so incensed at his losing, the Northerners at his defending, that both were determined to hang him. He was running for his life. He took me to a hill from which I could see the garrison and the American flag flying over it. I looked and saw we were standing in blood up to our knees, while here and there ghastly white bones shone above the red surface. Just then, below me, I saw crowds of people running. "'What is it?' I asked. "'It means that in another instant they will commence to shell the town. Save yourself.' "'But, Will, I must save some clothes, too. How can I go among strangers with a single dress? I will get some,' I cried. He smiled and said, "'You will run with only what articles you happen to have on.' Bang went the first shell. The people rushed by with screams, and I awakened to tell Miriam what an absurd dream I had had. It happened, as Will had said, either that same day or the day after, for the change of clothes we saved apiece were given to Tish, who lost sight of us and quietly came home when all was over, and the two dirty skirts and old cloak mother saved, after carrying them a mile and a half, I put in the buggy that took her up, so I saved nothing except the bag that was tied under my hoops. Will was right. I saved not even my powder-bag. Tish had it in the bundle. My handkerchief I gave mother before we had walked three squares, and throughout that long, fearfully warm day, riding and walking through the fiery sunshine and stifling dust, I had neither to cool or comfort me. June 19th Miriam and I have disgraced ourselves. This morning I was quietly hearing Delly's lessons, when I was startled by Mother's shrieks of, "'Send for a guard! They've murdered him!' I saw through the window a soldier sitting in the road just opposite, with blood streaming from his hand in a great pool in the dust. I was downstairs in three bounds, and snatching up some water, ran to where he sat alone, not a creature near, though all the inhabitants of our side of the street were looking on from the balconies, all crying, Murder and help, without moving themselves. 
I poured some water on the man's bloody hand as he held it streaming with gore up to me, saying, The man in there did it, meaning the one who keeps the little grog shop, though it puzzled me at the time to see that all the doors were closed and not a face visible. I had hardly time to speak when Tish called loudly to me to come away. She was safe at the front gate and looking up I found myself in a knot of a dozen soldiers, and took her advice and retreated home. It proved to be the guard Miriam had roused. She ran out as I did, and, seeing a gentleman, begged him to call the guard for that murdered man. The individual, he must have been a patriot, said he didn't know where to find one. She cried out they were at Harriman's. He said he didn't believe they were. "'Go, I tell you!' she screamed at last. But the brave man said he didn't like to, so she ran to the corner and called the soldiers herself. "'Oh, most brave man!' Before we got back from our several expeditions, we heard Mother, Lily, Mrs. Day, all shouting, "'Bring in the children, lock the doors, etc.' All for a poor wounded soldier." We after discovered that the man was drunk and had cursed the woman of the grog-shop, whereupon her husband had pitched him out in the street where they found him. They say he hurt his hand against a post, but Wood could never have cut deep enough to shed all that gore. I don't care if he was drunk or sober, soldier or officer, federal or confederate. If he had been Satan himself lying helpless and bleeding in the street I would have gone to him. I can't believe it was as criminal as though I had watched quietly from a distance, believing him dying and contenting myself with looking on. Yet it seems it was dreadfully indecorous. Miriam and I did very wrong. We should have shouted murder with the rest of the women and servants, whereas the man who declined committing himself by calling one soldier to the rescue of another, supposed to be dying, acted most discreetly, and showed his wisdom in the most striking manner. May I never be discreet or wise if this is Christian conduct or a sample of either. I would rather be a rash, impetuous fool. Charlie says he would not open his mouth to save a dozen from being murdered. I say I am not stoic enough for that. Lily agrees with him, Miriam with me. So here we two culprits stand alone before the tribunal of patriotism. Madame Roland, I take the liberty of altering your words and cry, Oh, patriotism, how many base deeds are sanctioned by your name! Don't I wish I was a heathen! In twenty-four hours the whole country will be down on us. Oh, for a pen to paint the slaves, whose country, like a deadly blight, closes all hearts when pity craves, and turns God's spirit to darkest night. May life's patriotic cup for such be filled with glory overmuch, and when their spirits go above in pride, spirit of patriotism, let these valiant abide, full in the sight of grand mass meeting, I don't want you to cuss them, but put them where they can hear politics, and yet can't discuss them. I can't say worse than that. June 26. Yesterday morning, just as I stepped out of bed, I heard the report of four cannon fired in rapid succession, and everybody asked everybody else, Did you hear that? 
so significantly that I must say my heart beat very rapidly for a few moments at the thought of another stampede. At half-past six this morning I was awakened by another report, followed by seven others, and heard again the question, Did you hear that? On a higher key than yesterday. It did not take me many minutes to get out of bed and to slip on a few articles, I confess. My chief desire was to wash my face before running, if they were actually shelling us again. It appears that they were only practicing, however, and no harm was intended. But we are living on such a volcano that not knowing what to expect we are rather nervous. I am afraid this close confinement will prove too much for me. My long walks are cut off on account of the soldiers. One month to-morrow since my last visit to the graveyard. That haunts me always. It must be so dreary out there. Here is a sketch of my daily life, enough to finish me off forever if much longer persisted in. First, get up a little before seven. After breakfast, which is generally within a few minutes after I get down, it used to be just as I got ready, and sometimes before, last winter, I attend to my garden, which consists of two strips of ground the length of the house in front, where I can find an hour's work in examining and admiring my flowers, replanting those that the cows and horses occasionally, once a day, pull up for me, and in turning the soil over and over again to see which side grows best. Oh, my garden, abode of rare delights! How many pleasant hours I have passed in you, armed with scissors, knife, hoe, or rake, only pausing when Mr. This or Mr. That leaned over the fence to have a talk. Last spring, that was. Ever so many are dead now, for all I know, and all off at the war. Now I work for the edification of proper young women, who look in astonishment at me, as they would consider themselves degraded by the pursuit. A delicate pair of hands my flower-mania will leave me. Then I hear Delly's and Morgan's lessons, after which I open my desk and am lost in the mysteries of arithmetic, geography, Blair's lectures, Noelle Chaspal, Ollendorf, and reading aloud in French and English, besides writing occasionally in each, and sometimes a peep at Lavoine, until very nearly dinner. The day is not half long enough for me. Many things I would like to study I am forced to give up for want of leisure to devote to them. But one of these days I will make up for present deficiencies. I study only what I absolutely love now, but then, if I can, I will study what I am at present ignorant of, and cultivate a taste for something new. The few moments before dinner, and all the time after, I devote to writing, sewing, knitting, etc., and if I included darning, repairs, alterations, etc., my list would be tremendous, for I get through with a great deal of sewing. Somewhere in the day I find half an hour or more to spend at the piano. Before sunset I dress, and am free to spend the evening at home, or else walk to Mrs. Bruno's, for it is not safe to go farther than those three squares away from home. From early twilight until supper, Miriam and I sing with the guitar, generally, 
and after sit comfortably under the chandelier and read until about ten. What little reading I do is almost exclusively done at that time. It sounds woefully little, but my list of books grows to quite a respectable size in the course of a year. At ten comes my Bible class for the servants. Lucy, Rose, Nancy, and Dophy assemble in my room and hear me read the Bible or stories from the Bible for a while. Then one by one say their prayers. They cannot be persuaded to say them together. Dophy says she can't say with Rose cause she ain't got no brothers and sisters to pray for, and Lucy has no father or mother, and so they go. All difficulties and grievances during the day are laid before me, and I sit like Moses judging the children of Israel until I can appease the discord. Sometimes it is not so easy. For instance, that memorable night when I had to work Rose's stubborn heart to a proper pitch of repentance for having stabbed a carving fork in Lucy's arm in a fit of temper. I don't know that I was ever as much astonished as I was at seeing the dogged, sullen girl throw herself on the floor in a burst of tears and say, if God would forgive her, she would never do it again. I was lashing myself internally for not being able to speak as I should, furious at myself for talking so weakly, and lo, here the girl tumbles over, wailing and weeping. And Dophy, overcome by her feelings, sobs, "'Lucy, I scratched you last week. Please forgive me this once.' And amazed and bewildered, I look at the touching tableau before me of kissing and reconciliation, for Lucy can bear malice toward no one, and is ready to forgive before others repent, and I look from one to the other, wondering what it was that upset them so completely, for certainly no words of mine caused it, Sometimes Lucy sings a wild hymn. Did you ever hear the heaven bells ring? Come, my loving brothers, when I put on my starry crown, etc. And after some such scene as just described, it is pleasant to hear them going out of the room saying, Good night, Miss Sarah, God bless Miss Sarah, and all that. End of Book Two, Part One